today. Romans chapter 12, and I would encourage you to open a Bible, turn on a Bible, but get to Romans chapter 12 today. We are in our third week of our series, Let Us Be in 23. And uh, the idea of this series, as I've been saying over the past few weeks, is it's a new year. And um, how are we going to be as a believer in Christ? You know, what should we be doing? How should we be acting? What's, what's my life like as a believer? And so the idea is, as a believer, let us be, and we've been filling in blanks for 23. And I would encourage you, if you have missed last week or the week before, if you've missed both weeks or one of the weeks, I would encourage you, listen to the podcast, go to the website, listen to those messages, because those two messages set the tone for the series. And uh, those two messages, just very powerful messages from God's word, and I would just encourage you to listen to those. But today, we're going to be looking at Romans chapter 12. And I've entitled today's message, Let Us Be All In. And let me ask you, um, and this is a weird, I thought about this illustration. This is a weird illustration, especially for church. And if you have kind of um, traditional views on this, and you shouldn't be talking about this in church, but... Um, how many of you know what the best hand is for poker? Anybody? What is it, Devon? Royal flush. Royal flush. And in fact, if you have a hand of the ten of spades, jack of spades, queen of spades, king of spades, and the ace of spades, you have the highest hand in poker and you cannot be beat. Now, here's the thing. If you have a royal flush in spades... Actually, you have a pretty much royal flush in any um, suit. But if you have a royal flush in spades, um, can I tell you, you're, you're not going to be going check, check. Because check means I don't really have a hand, but I'm bluffing or whatever. I'm going to pass it. Or you're like, well, I'll put in two chips. No, no, no. If you have a royal flush with all spades and it's the last hand, what are you normally going to do? All in. You're, you're like, here, I've got, I've got a boatload of chips. I'm putting them all into the center of the table. I am all in. And the reason why you're all in is because you know you can't what? Lose. You cannot lose. There is no ifs, ands, or buts about it. You will win this pot because you have the royal flush and you're going to win. That's what I want to talk about from... Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Not in the terms of poker, but in the idea of as a believer in Jesus Christ, you hold a royal flush. And because you are a believer in Jesus Christ, because if you know Christ as your Savior, what you have in Christ, you hold the royal flush in him. Guess what your job, your role at that point is? I'm all in. Because of what I'm holding, I'm all in. And that's what Paul is showing us here today in Romans chapter 12. And that's why I've entitled this message today that let us be in 23 all in. I'm pushing my chips to the center of the table. I'm all in. And so today, let me read the, the first two verses here. In chapter 12, Paul writes, he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, 
to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. So here's the first thing that I want us to see from this text, and it's this. Number one, grasp the depth and riches of God's mercy. Grasp the depth and riches of God's mercy. Here in these two verses, Paul is exhorting and and giving a spiritual um, charge to the church. He's he's giving an exhortation. He's, He's challenging the church spiritually in these two verses. But he just doesn't dive in and say, hey, present yourself to God. He gives the basis as to why you should be doing this spiritual charge. Why he's he's going to base his his exhortation on something. And he's like, because of this, here's how you respond. And the basis of his exhortation is found right there at the beginning. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. But notice there in that first part of verse one, the notice the word brothers. Now, the word brothers is just a generic term. He's not just not talking about guys here. He's talking about the the idea of brothers and sisters. He's talking about the family of God. He's talking about the church. So he's addressing the church. He's addressing anybody who calls themselves a believer in Jesus Christ, a follower of Christ. He's addressing anyone who says, I am a Christian. So if you're here today, and you fall into that category. If I were to ask you personally, one-on-one, are you a Christian? And if you say yes, this is you, all right? You're in the boat. And he's addressing you. So if you are here today and you say, yes, I'm a believer in Jesus Christ. I am a Christian. He's addressing you. And so he says, notice that the first few words of verse 1. He says, I appeal to you, therefore. I appeal to you. The NIV and the New American Standard Version, it says, I urge you. Our English word for appeal or urge actually come from uh, the Greek word um, parakaleo. And the Greek word parakaleo means it's actually an earnest request. It means to plead. It means to beg. Paul is begging the church. He He is giving an earnest request. He is pleading with Christians. I mean, I I picture Paul writing this as if he was on his knees and he's crying out to Christians and he is strongly begging them to do something. And the exhortation is going to be what he's begging for. But again, he's continuing to set his basis for his exhortation. And so he's, he's urging them. And the first thing he's urging them to do is he's, he's like, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. I've always liked the way the NIV says this. He says, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy. Paul is 
Again, he's about to give a spiritual exhortation. He's about to challenge the church spiritually. But before he does that, before he gives the exhortation itself, he is pleading, view the mercy of God. Because of the mercy of God, he's saying, this is what we do. The mercy of God, this is, this is something we've truly got to understand. When he says, I urge you, brothers, by the view of God's mercy, by, the, the, grasp this thing. You see, because the reality is, if we're honest, the mercy of God, the grace of God, just becomes two things that we become so used to. We, we become numb to it. We, we just, it's something we take for granted, Okay. But the mercy of God, the word mercy truly means God not giving you or treating you for what you deserve. And the idea is, is the mercy of God, God does not treat you and me. He does not treat humanity according to their sins. We need to grasp that. Okay, Paul is, is saying, I want you to view and to, to understand the mercy of God. Because the mercy of God is God looking at humanity and saying, I'm not going to treat them as their sins deserve. You see, the problem is we as people always want to bring God down to our level. We want God to conform and to form himself according to the way we think and how we view things, okay? And so what we do is we think sin, let's just be honest, all right? We truly believe as people sin is not a big deal. Sure, murder's a big deal, but lying, not a big deal. Cheating, not that big of a deal. Yeah, little sin's not a big deal. We truly believe as people that sin, to a degree, not a big deal. And so what we think is that God just overlooks sin. But here's what we need to understand. God is God. God, as Isaiah repeats so many times, is the sovereign Lord. Guess who is not? We are not. Humanity is not God. No matter how much we think we are, no matter how much we exclaim, look at how awesome we are, we are not God. We are not. God, Jehovah God is God Almighty, the Lord of Lords. He is the sovereign Lord, the creator of everything, which means we are the creation. And we, as the creation, have disobeyed. We, as the creation, have rejected the ways of God. We, as the creation, have sinned. And so, as creator... As creator God, he has every right to treat his creation as he sees fit. Yes or no? Yes. 
Absolutely. If you are a builder of something, if you like to make things, and you make something and it breaks, do you, as the creator of the object that you made, have the right to do what you want with it? If it breaks, if you want to throw it out into the curb and let the trash man take it, you have that right. Or you have the right to go, you know what, I'm going to fix this thing and I'm going to keep using it. You have the the right as the creator. So God has the right to look at his creation and go, they don't deserve nothing from me. They're the sinful one. They're the sinner. They're the broken one. I am going to throw it out to the curb and I will start over. The reality is, loved ones, and this is where you and I've got to truly understand this. We deserve absolutely nothing from God. We are the sinner. And the reality is, the truth is, you and I deserve, every single one of us in this room, every single person who has ever lived, now living, and will live, every single person through humanity deserves to be punished for their sin. We all deserve to be eternally separated from God. We all deserve hell. But the problem is, people... Humanity, we create a picture of what we deserve. And what the picture we create is this. Yes, we do wrong things as people. Yes, we do sin. But overall, we are basically what? Good. We are basically good as humanity. Within us, we basically do good things. And so... Because we are basically good and we can do good things and if we just do the right things, if we can do and and we do good works, God will accept us. God will, he, he will just overlook what we've done wrong and he will, you've been basically good, we get to go to heaven. That's the picture we paint. God's word paints a completely different picture. You see, this is why the picture that God's word paints, you and I have got to see it. Let me ask you, when was the last time that you just sat for a moment in silence no disruptions, nothing. And you just pondered what I just said. You just pondered your sin for a moment. You truly pondered your sinful condition and you truly pondered the mercy of God. When was the last time you've done that? If it's been a while, let's do that for right now. I'm gonna, like I said, we paint a picture as people, here's what we're really like. God's word paints a completely different picture. Here's what God's word paints you truly as a person. Ponder this in your heart for a moment. Romans chapter 3 verse 10 tells us that there is no one righteous. No, not one. Meaning there is no one right before God. There is no one right before God. Romans 3.23 says we have all sinned and we fall short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. 
Ephesians chapter 2 says that we are all dead in our trespasses and sin and by nature are an object of God's wrath. Isaiah 64, 6 says, all of us have become like one who is unclean and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. Ephesians 2, 12 says that we are separated from Christ and without hope and without God. That is our true spiritual condition. No matter how much we want to paint it, our painting is like a little three-year-old taking finger paint and going, look, it is a Rembrandt. And you look at it and go, no, it's finger paint with doodles. You put a little three-year-old finger paint next to a Picasso, it is no not even close. You paint our picture and you put it up to God's picture. It's not even in the same framework. God paints the picture of who we are. We are sinners. And we deserve nothing from him. But, everybody say but. But now for the rest of the story. You see, Psalm 103 says it this way. The Lord is merciful and gracious. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Okay, so we are the sinner. And the reality is humanity is, is, is there's no hope for us if not for the grace or the mercy of God. Now, here's the reality. I said this to Paula. If it wasn't for the mercy of God, there would be no grace of God. Because mercy opens the door for grace to flow. Because the mercy of God is God not treating you and giving you what you deserve. The grace of God is God giving you what you don't deserve. The mercy of God is God making a decision to say, I will not treat them as their sins deserve. And then I'm going to give them and show them grace and give them forgiveness that they don't deserve. That's why Psalm 103 says he is gracious and merciful. He's both of them. So here's what we have. Again, we can contemplate about how bad we are, but we also got to contemplate now what God has given us because of his grace and his mercy. In John chapter 3, it says that God loves us and gave Christ to die for us. And Ephesians 2 says, even though we are dead in our sin, we are made alive in Christ. Romans 5 says that we have peace and we are reconciled with God through Christ. In Galatians chapter 4, it says, we are redeemed from the law so we can be adopted into his family. Ephesians 4 says that we are sealed by the Holy Spirit for the day of redemption. John 10 says that we are secure forever in his, in both Jesus's and God's hands. Ephesians 2 says that we are no longer separated from God, but brought near to God through Christ. 
And then 1 Peter chapter 1 says, Praise be to God and, th- and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept up in heaven for you. You see, that's the mercy of God. Those are the mercies that we have received. And that is what Paul is begging us to understand. He is begging us and urging us by the mercies of God. In view of God's mercy, when you truly understand who you are without Christ and what you have because of Christ. It should change something in you. You can't be the same. You can't go through the life the same. And Paul now, from his basis of God's mercy, he catapults us into his exhortation. And here's the second thing. When you grasp God's mercy, go all in. When you grasp God's mercy, the mercy of God is this. You're holding the royal flush. You can't lose because of Christ what you have. I'm all in. I'm all in, God. Here it is. When you grasp the mercy of God, go all in. Because look at what Paul now says. I appeal to you, brothers. I urge you, brothers, by the mercies of God or in view of God's mercy. Here it is. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. The NIV says a spiritual act of worship. So Paul says, I'm urging you. I am pleading with you, Christians. If you can see the mercy of God and you truly understand the mercy of God, here's what you do. You're all in. And how are you all in? I'm presenting myself as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God because it's a spiritual act of worship. You see, here's the thing. When I'm all in, when I'm all in, I'm going to be all in when it comes to the worship of God. I'm going to be all in when it comes to the worship of God, because that's where this is really drilling down on. The first part of this is about the worship of God. Now, when he says, offer yourself as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God as a spiritual act of worship, he is making a parallel for us as the church to those of the Old Testament. Because in the Old Testament, the Jews, as an act of worship, would bring an animal, a bull, ram, goat, lamb, doves, whatever it was, an animal to the temple. And they would bring that animal and they would surrender it to the priest, give it up. And then that priest would sacrifice that animal. Now, just as Paul says, offer yourself as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable, You see, back in the Old Testament days, the people were required to bring an animal sacrifice. But here's the thing. They just didn't go out to the pen and go, 
that lamb or that bull, man, that thing is going to die. That, 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 bull's, that, bull, that bull's not going to reproduce. I'm going to get rid of it. That bull, that, that, that goat, whatever it is, man, look how horrible that thing is. It's lame. It limps. It doesn't do. I'm going to take that thing and, and, and give it away because that's worthless to me. No, no, no. When Paul says, offer, a living, be, offer yourself as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable, not acceptable to you, acceptable to God. And you know what acceptable God was? The person would go out to their pen and they would start going through the animals and guess which one they would find? The very best. Because they knew this is going to God and they would find the best bull. Now you notice Paul says, offer yourself as a living sacrifice. That was the other issue. They would find the bull and they would take the bull and walk it to the, the temple. They wouldn't go to the bull and go, you know what? I'm not interested in the head. I'm going to cut the head off. I'll take the head to God because that doesn't do me any good. Or you know what? This, this back leg is kind of, I'm going to cut it off, but I'm going to keep everything else for me. No. It was the entire living creature, the best one. And they would bring it to the temple. And they would surrender it to the priest as an act of worship to their God. And it was the best of the best and it was living. And they were like, here it is, God. It's all for you. So how does that play out for you and me? Well, Paul says it. When you understand and you view the mercy of God, offer yourself. He says, offer your body. The idea is your life, who you are, as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Well, how do I do that? I'm not laying myself on an altar and putting a knife in. How do you and I offer our bodies as a living sacrifice? Simple. Every day, it's an act of worship. God, here I am. My life is not mine. It's yours. I'm all in. And God, whatever you want to do with my life, God, everything I have is yours. But that's not what we do. You see, what we do, let's just be honest. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands or anything, but let's just be honest. I've been in this business for long enough. I've seen too many people do this. I will give God just enough. I'm going to kill myself and I'm going to portion off portions and I'm going to keep the best for me, but I will give my leftovers to God. I will give the leftovers of my time to God. I will give the leftovers of my talent to God. I will give my leftovers of my treasure to God, but I'm going to keep the best for me. I remember years ago talking with a, a gentleman in this church and, um, he, he said, he goes, you know what? He goes, I serve, he goes I, I, I serve in the church and that's my giving so I don't have to give financially. And I was like, what? I'm like, show me the Bible where that, that reads. I go, no, dude. I, I'm like, I go, I go, yeah, you serve. That's giving to the Lord. I go, but you holding back your money is saying that's mine. I go, it's not. 
I go, the idea of giving is I give of my talent, I give of my treasure, I give of my time. The idea is that I consecrate myself unto the Lord. I surrender just as they in the Old Testament would surrender that animal and give it completely. And with how many of you know when you surrender something, there isn't like you surrender part of it. They had to surrender what? All of it. Hands off. It's yours. Take it. When we offer ourselves to the Lord as an act of worship. Now, let, let's, put some, let's put some balance in this. I'm not saying that, that you saying, okay, God, here I am. Now you've got to go be a missionary somewhere. I'm not saying that, well, now you've got you know, to be in full-time ministry. I'm not saying that. Okay. What I'm saying is when you offer yourself... When God opens a door for you to be a witness, guess what you do as an act of worship? I'll be a witness for you, God. I don't know what's going to do to me. They may make fun of me, but I'll be a witness as an act of worship. When an opportunity for you to serve in a ministry pops up, it's like, no, you know what? I, I, I'm just too busy in other areas. I can't do that. No, it's like, okay, you know what? I'm going to put, I'm going to, it's finding and placing your life before the Lord and going, here it is. In the 1800s, late 1800s, early 1900s, um, pastor, an English pastor and theologian by the name of John Stott, <clears throat> he says it this way, all true worship is a response to the self-revelation of God in Christ and scripture and arises from our reflection on who he is and what he has done. The worship of God is evoked, informed, and inspired by the vision of God. You see, when you have a, a, a clearer vision of God's mercy, when you have a clearer perspective of the mercy of God and, and what you really deserve and what God gives you, guess what it should do? It should change my worship. It should change what I give to God. It should change God, here I am. I want to offer myself, my body, my, my everything, God, as a living sacrifice. I like how one commentator says it. He says it this way. <clears throat> this is not a call for legal. <clears throat> this is not a call for a legalistic presentation. And that's what I'm trying to say. I'm not, I'm not calling for legalism here. I'm not saying, well, you, you, you offer yourself. To, no. It's not about legalism. He says, it's not about a legalistic presentation, but a loving presentation. Yes, even a love offering to the one who has demonstrated his love to us when we were totally unlovely. Abounding mercies, amazing grace. As Carl C. Boberg so beautifully penned. So I had to do some research on who Carl C. Boberg was. And Carl C. Boberg was an English poet back in the late 1800s. And he wrote a poem after he, was, he experienced a tremendous storm and he wrote a poem. And, and about 20 or 30 years later, after he wrote this poem, those words that he penned were written into a song. And I, here, here are the words of his poem that became a song and see if you can identify it very quickly. And so this commentator quotes Carl C. Boberg and he says, as he so beautifully penned, he writes this. And when I think that God, his son not sparing, sent him to die, I scarce can take it in, that on the cross my burden gladly bearing, he bled and died to take my sin 
to take away my sin. Then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee. How great thou art, how great thou art. The song that we sing was written by a man in the late 1800s to go, God, you are awesome. And when I view what you have done for me, I can't take it in. You see, that's what happens when we know and we see the mercy of God. It should cause us to be all in when it comes to the worship of God by being a living sacrifice. But not only is it about the worship of God, but it also I'm going to be all in when it comes to the will of God. I'm going to be all in when it comes to the worship of God. I'm going to be all in when it comes to the will of God. Now look at verse 2. Paul writes, he says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. You see, Paul is, is trying to get us to understand when you know the mercy of God, when you truly understand that and you grasp the mercy of God, it will change your worship and it will change how you do the will of God. Because Paul is trying to get us to understand, to see that the will of God is going to just flow out of us when we understand the mercy of God. And that's what he says. Look how he breaks this down. He says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. The word world there is not the earth, but it, it, it's the ideas, the beliefs, the teachings, the philosophies, the methodologies, and the strategies of fallen people, of sinful people. All right? It, it's, it's, what, it's how we think. It's what we say. And so Paul is saying, don't conform. If you have an NIV, it says don't um, conform to the pattern of this world. The idea, Paul says, don't conform. Don't mold yourself into its shape. Don't take what the world says and become like it. Don't take the ideas and the teachings and the beliefs of what the world is saying and shape yourself and mold yourself into its pattern but be transformed. You see, the reality is the earth or the world, the, the teachings and the beliefs and the philosophies of the world are going to be the outs, you know, outward things and it's going to come upon us to get us to conform to it. The enemy wants to conform your thinking to its rules, to its thing, to get you to act the way the world acts. So it's going to try to get you to conform to what it says and what it believes. But the Holy Spirit working inwardly is going to try to transform you. So the reality is this. You will be a person who is conforming or you will be a person who is transforming. And the way you determine whether you are conforming or transforming is what Paul says. He says, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. 
The renewal of your mind is simply this. You think different. And guess what you are to think about? The mercy of God. Because when you start to think about the mercy of God, as I said, when was the last time that you just sat and pondered that for a moment? In your mind, thought about it. Where you truly thought, God, you are awesome. When was the last time you just allowed your thoughts to go down the rabbit trail of God's mercy? When was the last time that you just quieted yourself in your mind and thought about the rabbit trail of your sinfulness? And let that rabbit trail really go. To really go, if I did not know Christ, if it wasn't for the mercy of God, I would be forever lost, eternally damned. But the mercy of God does not treat me as my sins deserve. When you think about that, when you truly allow your mind to be changed and transformed by that thought, guess what's going to happen? It will change how you worship God and it will change how you do the will of God. Because the reality is, loved ones, think about it. As I said, we... We want to bring God down and we want to conform God according to us. We want God to change his ways to fit into our ways. And we try to push that, that square peg into that round circle all the time. And so what we truly believe is, you know what? God should be transforming his will to accomplish my will. Let's just be honest about that, okay? Because I do that. And I'm pretty sure if I'm doing it, you're doing it too. God, I don't want to do it your way. I think you should do it my way. Do you want to know what the greatest crisis in your life is? The greatest crisis in your life is not your finances. The greatest crisis in your life is not your health. The greatest crisis in your life is not your marriage. Here's the greatest crisis in your life. The crisis of your will. Simple. Because every day you have to make a decision. Will I do it my way or God's way? Will I surrender to God? Will I give up my rights to God? Will I let God do what he wants in my life? Will I fill in the blank? The crisis of the will. It is the battle of the will. And the reality is when we want God to transform and conform to us, we think our will is right and it's not. That's why when you understand and you change the renewal of your mind and you have a better and understanding and visual perception in your thinking of who God truly is, it changes your life. It transforms everything about you. And that's why Paul says, don't conform to the world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God. You'll be able to know this is the will of God. And I've said this so many times. How do we know primarily what the will of God is? The word. The word. The majority of the time, if you want to know what the will of God is, it's right here. Open it up, read it, study it, know it. This is the will of God. 
The will of God, the Bible's going to tell you what God's will is, is for your, for your finances. The Bible's going to tell you what the will of God is for relationships. The, the word of God is going to tell you what the will of God is when it comes to um, maybe not where to work, but how to work, how much to work, all that kind of stuff. You will know the will of God when it comes to spiritual matters, when it comes to relational matters, when it comes to all kinds of matters. The will of God is right here. But we don't want to do it. We simply don't want to do it. But Paul says, if you will renew your mind, change your thinking about the mercy of God. And he urges us to do this. He pleads with us. He's begging you as a believer in Jesus Christ, grasp the mercy of God. Because when you truly grasp the mercy of God, God, here I am. Open hands, God. I'm a living sacrifice for you, God. I'm going to give you my best. I'm going to give you my all. Here it is. Again, not legalism, not legalistic actions, none of this. Well, no, it is just simply a life of surrender. Whatever you want to do, God, here I am. I see what your word says, God, here I am. Now, I've always say this, are you going to do it perfectly? No. But the idea is that we are progressively moving to this place. It is my prayer that this year, let us be in 23, that everyone who is hearing this message, whether here or online, guess what your will, your will is progressively wanting to do the will of God that you are transforming your thinking because you've come to really understand and grasp the mercy of God. And when you get the mercy of God, you understand what you have in Christ. And when you really understand what you have in Christ, it's going to change everything about you. It will change how you worship, just not on a Sunday morning, but throughout the week. That everything you do is an act of worship. And it's going to change how you respond to the will of God. Because over the next five, four, five weeks or so, it's going to be let us be. And it's going to challenge you about the will of God. About doing the will of God. Not just being a hearer of this thing. Not just be going, oh yeah, that's, that's good stuff, Jim. I like the mercy of God. But no effect on you. My prayer is that this word the Spirit of God, as we prayed over the last couple of weeks, that the Spirit of God would invade this place. I stole that from Ron Robinson as he prayed this morning. I like that. That God would invade this place and he would transform so many things in us. But he would transform us to go, God, your way, your will, and let it be my joy to say, as we sang this morning. Why don't we all stand? We're going to close with that song we sang during the offering. The chorus is very simple, but I pray that you would sing this song almost as a prayer, a, a prayer of faith and a prayer of commitment, a prayer of surrender.
Because that's what this song is all about. It is about saying, God, here I am. I'm surrendering to you. God, I, I get what you've done for me. So God, here I am. As we sing this song, I pray that would be your prayer. And that as you leave today, this message doesn't go in one ear and right out the other. But this message has gone into your ear, into your mind, into your heart, and it will flow out of your life. Every week I pray a simple prayer that God would take his word through the power of the Holy Spirit and it would change your mind, convict your heart, and challenge your will. And I pray that this will be one of those messages where we all walk out of here and go, God, here I am. A living sacrifice surrendered to you, Lord, holy and acceptable as my act of worship so that way my mind, God, would be transformed by you and your word and your Holy Spirit so I would be able to know the will of God every day as I walk out in my life. And so, Father, we thank you. We praise you. So, Lord, now take this song and use it in our hearts to transform our lives, I pray. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.